Good evening once again. Let's turn in our Bibles to the Old Testament book of Judges. Judges chapter 7. Tonight's message will be the final in the series of messages on the life of Gideon. And we look at it from the title of God's Program for Victory. God's Program for Victory. And I'll begin reading in the seventh chapter and take up where we left off in the last session with verse 16 and read through the remainder of the chapter. He, that is Gideon, divided the three hundred men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow with a trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and say, The sword of the Lord and and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and brake the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and brake the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands, and the trumpets in their right hands to blow with them. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp. And all the hosts ran and cried and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets. And the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And all the hosts fled to Bethshitha, in Zerah, and to the border of Abel-Maholah, unto Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali, and out of Asher, and out of all Manasseh, and pursued after the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and take before them the waters unto Bethbarah and Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Bethbarah and Jordan. And they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and they slew Oreb upon the rock Oreb, and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb, and pursued Midian, and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of Jordan. For several weeks now, we have spent our Sunday evenings looking at the life and events in the man known as Gideon. We've seen God's call to him to be one of the deliverers of Israel, and that Gideon was a man of like passion such as we are, that even though God spoke to him very clearly, he was a man who wanted to go by sight and forever was putting out the fleece, trying to reassure himself that God was with him. And even after God confirmed 
his word to him three or four occasions. It wasn't until that Gideon was told to go down into the camp of the Midianites, the large army, spread out on the hillsides in the valley, and to go down into that camp, and there he would hear something that would encourage him. And he did so, and he heard two of the Midianites talking. One had a dream, and they had seen a stone or roll down into the camp. And they wondered what that meant. The other one said, it's Gideon, it's Gideon. Israel is going to defeat us. Well, this, when Gideon heard the word of a man, it gave him more confidence than the three times that God's word had spoken to him. And so while he was God's instrument to be used, yet he was an instrument that was as weak as all of us are. We hear the word of God day in and day out, and yet we are prone to think that unless some man tells it to us whom we highly respect, well, we don't know whether to believe it or not. And thus men divide themselves up into, I'm of Billy Graham, or I'm of Jimmy Swaggart, or I'm of this, and who, whenever they say anything, then people will say, that's what I believe. That's what I believe. But very few will take the word of God itself as coming from the Lord. Now, tonight, we see the final chapter in the deliverance of Israel from the hands of their enemies, the Midianites, far outnumbered. Now, God has selected 300 choice soldiers, and he has eliminated a great number who have gone home or been sent back to their families. And with 300, God has formulated a strategy for overthrowing the enemy and accomplishing the victory so that he would get glory from it. If you listen carefully to the reading of the Word of God, you saw that Gideon used his military strategy by dividing the 300 into three groups and having each of them use three instruments, most unlikely of obtaining a victory over a huge army. Did you note that those instruments were first a blowing trumpet, an empty pitcher, and a shining lamp. The three instruments that God ordained to accomplish his military campaign of victory. A blowing trumpet, each man, 300 trumpets, 300 empty pitchers of clay, and inside those pitchers a shining candle, or a lit candle. Now here is how Gideon went about. Each one of his 300 was to take a trumpet in one hand and a pitcher in the other hand. And in the middle of the middle watch or the middle of the night, they were strategically placed all around the camp of the Midianites and in the camp. And when Gideon blew the trumpet, then all 300 blew their trumpets. And what this sounded like to the Midianites is that they were completely surrounded by a huge army that had come upon them unaware. And then in this empty pitcher, a pitcher of clay, had nothing in it except the candle. Then this candle was lit, but it could not be seen by the Midianites. And then upon the sound of the trumpet blowing, they were also then to break that candle. And then all at once there were 300 lights scattered throughout and around the camp of the Midianites. And so when the soldiers woke up, they heard the sound of the trumpet, which they knew to be the advance of a mighty army. 
and they saw all of these lights of the enemy. They felt that there were hundreds and thousands of them. And they were far outnumbered. Suddenly there were lights everywhere. And Gideon said to each man, Don't you move, but you stay in your place. Don't let the lights move. You stay stationary, and you blow the trumpets, and let them see the lights. And what happened was that the army of the Midianites became so disoriented that they rose up, grabbed their swords, and thought that the enemy was all in the midst of them, and they started killing and hurting each other. And they slew one another, and they were totally routed. And as they began to flee, then Gideon sent messengers to the other tribes and says, Come and help us mop up now, and we shall have the victory in the battle. And they did so. And they destroyed two of the main leaders of the Midianites, and they won the battle. I'd like to take this and to show from a spiritual counterpart that there are some typologies set forth here in this strategy that God ordained for this victory that have very much application to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today as to how we are to carry out his program of advancing the cause of Christ in the gospel. We're living in a day in which that it appears that the enemy far outnumbers the people of God. And this has caused many who identify themselves as the people of God to get all unduly bent out of shape, if we can use that terminology. And they feel like that in order to survive and not be swallowed up by the enemy, that we've got to come up with some new strategy, some new program for advancing the cause of Christ in this generation, or else we're going to be overwhelmed and defeated. And thus, major denominations are continually programming ideas and thoughts into computers, hoping that a computer may read out and spit out something that will be of such victory that the church can just suddenly be filled and be prosperous once again. Now, isn't this the very opposite as to how God had Gideon go about this thing? The, the battle cry in the modern church is, we must have greater numbers in order to do the work of God. We must have more resources available to us in the realm of finances to do the work of God. And thus, motivation after motivation is given to try to increase numbers and to try to increase the financial giving. And isn't it interesting that with all of the mission work, all of the millions and billions and trillions of dollars that have been poured into the work of the gospel in the last hundred years, that there's so little power and so little evidence of a moving of God in our midst. Now, I think that if we look at this analogy very carefully, we'll see that God doesn't have to have a new program. God's had a program all along. And he's had a method for advancing this thing. Jesus stated, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is an offensive organization or organism. 
It's not a little defensive thing of getting in a little group and pulling up the shelters and building the fences high so the enemy can't get in. No, the enemy ought to be afraid of what the people of God are doing, rather than the people of God being overwhelmed with what the enemy is doing out here in our culture. And so God has a program. man asked me one time, he says, what kind of a program do you have at your church? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what do you do to get people in? What is your program? And I said, our program is the same one that Christ and the apostles used. Oh, he said, what is that? I said, it is promoting the glory of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is expounding his word in our public worship services and exhorting our people to live dedicated, committed lives unto the glory of God, and in doing so, share the gospel with their neighbors and their relatives throughout the weekdays. He said, is that all? I said, that's all that I know that we're authorized to do. He said, well, that won't work. That may have worked in years past, but that just will not work anymore. I happen to disagree. I happen to believe that God's military campaign for victory and promoting the gospel is in the same analogy that he gave to Gideon right here. And they involve these three instrumentalities. A trumpet that is blowing, an empty vessel, and a light shining in that vessel. Now let's examine those three instruments that God used in obtaining the victory here tonight. Now first, we notice that each man was to have a trumpet. The trumpets were often made of brass. Thus we read of a brazen trumpet in the Old Testament. When the trumpets were blown, they gave forth a sound. And thus the statement is the sounding of the trumpet. In the New Testament, this is picked up at the return of Christ. A reference is given at the sound of the last trump. The trump of God shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians for a moment. And here we'll see that the gospel was referred to as being sounded out from the analogy of a trumpet into all of the area. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, your New Testament. And verse 8. Notice in verse 5, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you became examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God really is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Now, Paul says, you picked up on my example of promoting the, the program of God. And that is, you followed my example. And my example was to sound out the word of God wherever I went. And this term, sounding forth, 
The word sounded here is the same one that's used in 1 Corinthians 13.1 where it speaks of sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. And so the idea originates in the proclamation or the spreading of the gospel. It originates in the concept of the blowing forth of a trumpet announcing that there is to be an advancement made in the army. It's not taps that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to blow. It's to be an advancement. There are some of my brethren who think it's time to blow taps, that it's all over. God's through saving anybody. Let's get in just little groups and let's just have little Bible studies, and that's all there is. The church is gone. There's nothing more we can do. Let's just wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not so. The trumpet is to be sounded forth, and the gates of hell ought to shake and quiver when the gospel goes forth, rather than the people in the pews quivering when the devil, when the devil goes about his work, and we read about it daily. The devil is afraid of Jesus Christ. He's fearful of Christ. And the devils, when they were cast out of the demoniac of Gadara, had to go to Jesus and ask for permission just to inhabit the bodies of a swine. So it is time then for us to recognize that the gospel is to be sounded forth. The word of God was sounded forth from the city or the church in Thessalonica, in the same manner as when men blow a sound through a trumpet of brass. Now, this is also interesting when we come to the New Testament word preach. Paul says we preach Christ. We preach Christ. That word preach in relation to the gospel comes from a word which signifies to herald forth or to blow forth like a, a heralder, like someone who was to announce the appearance of a person of nobility or a military trumpeter who was to blow forth and herald forth at its time that the general has said, onward, soldiers, it's time to fight. And so the word preach means to herald forth, to sound forth. The word of God, like that of a trumpet of brass, crystal clear as to what the scriptures of God teach. So a heralder is one, then, who took a trumpet and who blew a blast, a blast which was either understood to be a warning or a blast of good news. And when Gideon's 300 blew their trumpets... It was good news in the camp of Israel, but it was a terrible warning to the enemies of God. Now, every time that the gospel is proclaimed and heralded, it is to go forth as the sound of a trumpet. I am standing forth tonight as a preacher, a heralder, or in other words, a trumpet blower. I blow forth that which is found in the Word of God. This is God's program for how his church is to be built. Now, yes, God could, in his omnipotent power, have reached down and regenerated his elect apart from any blowing trumpet and brought his people into spiritual life. 
But no, he has ordained that as he calls out his own sheep, he will do so through the instrumentality of gospel preaching. And hence, the apostle says, it pleased God by the foolishness of what? Of preaching, of heralding forth on the sound of a trumpet to save them that believe. So preaching is an instrument in the hands of God to herald forth his truth in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. The trumpet is a symbol of the gospel, and the gospel is both a sounding forth of a warning and of good news. And I'm authorized to do that every time that we preach. We are to warn the wicked, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And yet we are to comfort those which are at unrest and have brought to see their need of a Savior by saying, look to the Savior, he is precious. There is good news. Christ has died in the place of sinners, and there is a way of access unto God himself, wherein God can remain a just and a holy God, and yet the justifier of ungodly sinners when they come through the means that he has appointed. So every time we proclaim the gospel, we are heralding forth the sound of God's trumpet. Now, the second instrument that God ordained in the army of Gideon was that every man was to take an empty pitcher in one of his hands. This pitcher was an earthen vessel or a jar of some type. Some of you are old enough to still remember those pitchers. Some of you have never seen one. But if you've seen any of the old-time pitchers, they were made out of clay, out of an earthen vessel. What does this symbolize? What does the earthen vessel symbolize? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. The word of God is powerful than a two-edged sword. Where does God place this word at? Who does he dispense the word unto to proclaim? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's just saying here, we were not religious hucksters, out trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes to get them to sign on the dotted line without telling them the whole truth. Paul was in essence said, we just commend the word of God to men and leave it to their conscience and God. And that is God's method. Oh, that the modern church of Jesus Christ had enough wisdom to recognize that. Because the cross is offensive, then contemporary ministers are looking for methods to water down the offense of the cross. Paul says we have renounced that, seeing that we have this ministry. We renounce this dishonesty, this concept of religious hucksterism. And in verse 3, if somebody says to Paul, but how is anybody going to be saved? If just by preaching the gospel, is that all you depend on, Paul? Look in verse 3, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are what? That are lost. If there's no response to the gospel, 
It's not my fault, Paul says, as a gospel minister. It's not the fault of the It's the fault of the hearer. It's the fault of the hearer. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Thus the light of the glorious gospel of the Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Well, then, if all men are blinded by the God of this world, then the question ought to be, then how does anybody ever see? How does anybody ever see what the truth is? Verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness as the Creator, has shined in our hearts, that is, by redemption, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, there's how we come to be Christians. It wasn't through human ingenuity. It wasn't through clever preaching. It wasn't through craftiness. As I read a book one time about a minister who says, now, when you, some of preachers make a great mistake in their preaching. He says they make such mistakes as in conclusion. And saying, now my final point is. And the man was saying, don't ever say that, preacher. And he goes on to say that if you say that, it will allow sinners to know you're about to conclude your service and you're about to give the altar call, and they will dig in. These are his words. And will not respond. But he says there's a better way. He says you can, quote, creep up on them. If you just suddenly stop your preaching and say, let's have an altar call, then they won't have time to resist. And so he has a whole scheme laid out as to how to get people down to the front, even by crafty and shrewd methodology from the pulpit. I know if I understand this passage of all, the Apostle Paul would groan at such a concept as that. He says, we don't have to depend upon craftiness and handling the Word of God in a sneaky fashion where we sneak up on people. If that fellow was here tonight, I'd tell him uh, you, that the, the backside of the sinner is just as blind and dark as the front side. You can get around his backside and think you're sneaking up on him. He's just as blind back in the back of his head as he is in the front of his head. The sinner is dead in trespasses and sins, and you're not going to sneak up on him. The only thing that's going to help him is the light of the gospel shining forth and the regenerating work of the Spirit enabling him to have eyes to see the light. And that's, what we, that's how we preach. We preach with total dependence upon God to do what we cannot do. The fellow says, well, that makes you feel sort of helpless, doesn't it? It surely does. It surely does. And that's the way God's program for victory is determined. Remember, God sent away thousands of them and got it down to 300. How helpless those 300 must have felt. But as we'll see here in a moment, every one of them was assigned a place. And they didn't start looking over and seeing what their neighbor was doing and wishing they had their place. But they stayed in the place where God had put them at and were used there. Now look in verse 7. As we begin to see now the analogy of Scripture, what the empty pitcher represented. But we have this treasure, this grace, in where? Earthen vessels. Earthen vessels. Why not in shiny crystal ears? Why didn't God bring forth the best 
instrument of light that was available in those days. Like you would find in a king's palace. Why didn't he give the 300 those instruments? Look in verse 7. That the excellency of the power may be of who? Of God and not of us. God has ordained his program for victory is that his word is to be sounded forth out of earthen vessels. Vessels made out of clay. Vessels who were sinners saved by grace, who knew they were sinners so that they could have a proper sympathy for those who they were preaching unto. And anybody who thinks that they're growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they're getting so high and holy that they're losing concept of what they once were as a sinner outside of Christ, and it's drawing them away from sinners, my friend, I caution you. Go back and see if you're really learning Christ aright. For Jesus came forth on a mission as a holy man, and he was not ashamed to identify with sinful people. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And if we are growing, we ought to also be coming in contact with sinful people and not becoming monks forming little monasteries and trying to protect ourselves from the defiling influences of this present world. An earthen vessel. Now, there's something else about this picture, though. Did you catch the text in the book of Judges? It was to be an empty picture. Nothing in it. An empty picture. What is that a symbol of? I believe it's a symbol of self-emptiness. That is an emptying of one so that the light of the Word of God may shine forth clearly to a lost and a corrupt generation. In other words, here is the sounding of the trumpet, the Word of God, placed in a vessel of clay, and that vessel is to be emptied of self-love, self-concern, self-advancement, and it's to be concerned, as we saw in the messages already in this series, that those whom God chose were those who were looking for the enemy at all times. They were the 300 that drank the water like the dog up out of the creek. They were concerned more with the battle than they were their own need for water. And so the empty vessel represents then a person whose life is emptied of self so that the glory of God may shine forth when God is pleased to energize that witness. We have the greatest example of all of this thing of emptying one of self in our master himself. For he who was God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of what? No reputation. That is, he emptied himself. Not of his deity, as the liberals would teach, but he emptied himself in that he did not require the glory that he had with the Father to be demonstrated in order that he might take the towel and become the role of a servant. 
Now, he did not think there was anything wrong for him being equal with God, for he was equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. That is, he emptied himself. And the apostle says, let this mind be in who? In you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Oh, that we might have less of self and more of Christ in our daily lives. That we might have less of self in our churches and more of Christ proclaimed that we might have less of our denomination proclaimed and more of the glory of God proclaimed, that we might have less of honor given unto ministers of clay and more honor given unto the chief shepherd himself. There is to be an empty vessel, and that represents an emptying of self. Self is empty. The empty picture represents the Christian who has emptied themselves of self-interest and is looking for the glory of God. Now then, there is something else, though, about this, this, this picture, the third instrument in our text. There was to be a lighted lamp in every picture. That is a candle in that day, which was lit, but it could not be seen because the picture covered it up. And those were to be lit... What does the light represent? I believe the scriptures, we can find that relatively easy. The lighted lamp is the word of God. It is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my what? Unto my path. The word of God is to be filled in the life of a person who is seeking the glory of God. And if we are less interested in what's going on to promote ourselves, then we will be filled more and more with the Word of God, which is the light of God, or the understanding. We say of something, can you see it? Can you see it? Jesus said of Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And some take that in a literal sense, and they said, you mean that when you're born again, you'll see something physically? No, no. Except a man be born again, he cannot understand spiritual things. He cannot comprehend. And we say, don't you see it? Don't you see it? And what we're saying to that person, don't you understand what we're saying? Don't you comprehend it? The Word of God is to be that which fills the life of an empty vessel, a vessel emptied of self, so that the world may be enabled to see the clarity of the gospel as it is presented in the person of Christ. The lighted lamp is the picture of the word of God in the heart and in the life of the Christian. The psalmist had said in Psalm 119, in verse 11, The word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Sin against thee. The word have I hid. The light, the understanding of God have I hid in my heart. And Christians are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly according to, to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. So every man was to have a trumpet. Every man was to have an empty vessel. And every man was to have a light within that vessel. God's program for advancing the church of Jesus Christ is through the proclamation of the Word of God in the Gospel 
coming from and out of the lives of people dedicated to the glory of God and emptied itself so that the gospel can shine forth in clarity to men and women, boys and girls, perishing and on their road to hell. This is God's method. Now, you cannot improve upon that. And when men try to say that just won't get it, and then they try to spend all of their time trying to come up with new methods, they could be using that time to spreading the gospel by just telling friends and neighbors where they're at and standing in their place where God's providence has placed them at. Now, next of all, in this method of God's victory in the life of Gideon, the trumpets were to be blown. The trumpet wasn't to be left in its case. It was to be blown. We've had uh, some in our family who tried a little bit on the trumpet. He decided that that wasn't his calling. So after mom and dad socked five or six hundred dollars into one, uh, he decided he wanted to do something else besides blow a trumpet. And that trumpet's lying in its closet, just begging for somebody to come along and buy it. <laughs> Some of you that got kids coming along, now I wouldn't use the pulpit for promoting self-interest. Now you understand that. The trumpet is not to be put in its case. It's to be blown. A city that's set upon a hill cannot be hid. Don't put your life under a bushel. Let it shine. A trumpet that is not blowing is a trumpet that's inoperative. God's program is to have blowing trumpets in the lives of all of his people whom he has shaken out of the salt shaker and put in the proper place by his providence to witness unto others. All my people, we have the idea presented to us that Mission work is leaving your present location and going across the waters. Well, God has had a plan throughout history in spreading the gospel. And I believe that there is a place for this. But I think that we are mistaken in thinking that the only people that God uses are those who leave their jobs and go into what is called full-time Christian service. I'd like to see that term in the Scripture somewhere. I'd like to see somebody show me the expression, full-time Christian service. What on earth are the people doing who are not in full-time Christian service? What are the people doing that are sitting in the pews that are there every public worship service? What are they if they are not full-time? I understand what the terminology means. It means a paid servant who preaches the gospel. I understand that. But my friend, all of us are to be full-time in the service of our Master. Wherever we are, we are to act as salt and what? And light. Salt to preserve that which is about to decay and light to give understanding to those who are in darkness. And every one of you have a little circle of acquaintances that you can act as salt and light unto. You don't have to think that you 
go over here and carry your life in this facet, and then on Thursday night you go to church visitation, and there you're going to let your light shine. Or you're going to resign your job, and you're going to go across the waters and let your light shine. No, God in his providence has given each of us a circle of acquaintances. And it's that circle that we are to stay in unless God's providence clearly moves us so that we can act as salt to restrain the corruption of the acquaintances whom we know and act as light unto them. Again, I've stated many times that a Man's greatest mission field is his own family. The greatest mission field is our own family. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. If we think that we can convert the world and lose our own family members. Act as salt and act as light. That's why we meet here on Wednesday nights to pray for those that are on our heart. Intercede on their behalf with the sounding trumpet of witnessing unto them. The church is to take the gospel and blow the glad tidings to earth's remotest bounds. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to whom? To every creature. As I have stated to you and expounded that passage on several occasions, I don't believe that that was possible for all the disciples to preach to every creature the way that it is interpreted today. But I don't believe that that was intended for the apostles to leave their little geographical region there in Palestine and to go throughout all the other geographical dimensions of the earth. I believe what that commission consisted of was the command of God to overcome racial prejudice and not just stay within their own culture of Jews, but was to take the gospel to Gentiles, into Samaria, and to half-breeds, and to Jerusalem, there where the true Jews or pure-blooded descendants of Abraham dwelt, and then unto the what? Uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, they were to preach the gospel to every person they came in contact with, regardless of racial barriers. And that meant that they were responsible that whoever came in contact with their life, they were to act as a watchman on the walls, as Ezekiel did in his day. God says, Ezekiel, you go out there and you warn them, and you'll be free from their blood. But if you don't warn them, I'll hold you accountable for their blood. And so Ezekiel was a faithful watchman on the walls of Israel. So the trumpet was to be blowing, blowing to those that we come in contact with. Now, next of all, the pitchers were to be broken. The pitchers were to be broken. These earthen vessels were to be broken, not spared. What are you getting at, preacher? I'm simply saying this. We are not to put ourselves up on a shelf and admire our own loveliness or usefulness. We are to give ourselves away in promoting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, not seeking to preserve our lives. 
Christians are not to try to spare themselves in the service of the Lord. Our Lord has warned us himself that those who seek to save their lives will lose their lives. Quite often, I hear individuals say, well now, don't wear yourself out now, preacher. Don't wear yourself out. I've heard others, on the other hand, say it's better to burn out than to rust out. I've heard that said as well. But my friend, this thing of our own earthly life, it is not just to be spent here as if we're on a vacation waiting for something better to come along. Our very bodies, our souls, our finances, our whole being are to be used to give ourselves away in promoting the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and not considering our own welfare as we do so. In other words, it's total commitment. It's total commitment. Self must be broken in order for the light of God to shine forth through in power. Go with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Paul commends a man for doing this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him, therefore, the more carefully, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. Now, here's Paul says, here's a matter of reputation. I want you to hold Epaphroditus in high esteem. Why? Because for the work of promoting the gospel of Christ, he had nearly destroyed his health, and he was near unto death. Now, someone would say, well, that's unnecessary. Paul says, that's someone that I recommend you to look to. Someone I recommend that you look to. He didn't regard his own welfare to the degree that he promoted the work of the gospel. That have anything to say about how we conduct our affairs, how we use our money and things? Hmm? Have anything to say about that? I think it says heaps. I think it says heaps. How much do we give unto the Lord's work in contrast to use upon self? Upon self. The pictures were to be broken, not spared. Now let's give another example of Paul himself, Second Corinthians, very quickly. Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Here are some things which Paul went through. Verse twenty three. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. He says, Now I'm just jesting here. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft, 
Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, and night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils by my own countrymen, perils by the heathen, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. I tell you, if anybody has aspirations of being a biblical pastor, they'd better sit down and think twice before they find out what they're in for. My people, there's more to being a pastor than standing and expounding the Word of God two or three times a week to the public. Look at what all Paul had to do. He said he'd suffered prison. He'd been beaten with rods. He'd been shipwrecked. He had eight kinds of perils, perils of waters, been in the ocean, robbers, his own countrymen, the heathen were after him. The city, he didn't like the city life. When he went to the major cities, they ran him out of there. So as he did is what some of my acquaintances done and told me, I got a, a request not too long ago from a fellow who wanted to pastor a church. He said, now, I want a church out in the country with about 200 people, and I want about $40,000 a year. <laughs> and I thought, my, my, my. <laughs> he said, I don't want to raise my family in the city where there's all this crime rate I want out in the country. Well, Paul may have thought that. He said, I got stoned in the city. I'll just go out in the wilderness. He said, I got the same problem out there. Wherever you preach the gospel to human flesh, you're going to run into conflicts. You're going to have conflicts. The sea, false brethren, what did he endure? He endured weariness. Trouble, painfulness, toil, watchings, that means sleeplessness. He couldn't sleep at night on, at insomnia. Hunger, thirst, fastings, cold, nakedness, and beside all of that, there was the care and oversight of the churches which he had founded. Now, what was Paul setting for us an example? The picture is to be broken and self is not to be considered. The pitcher is to be broken so that the light might shine. Self is not to be spared. And when I'm talking to self, I'm talking about everything we are and everything that we possess is to be available for the use of God. I've known individuals, parents, that have prayed that God would use their children. And then the son comes in sometime and says, Mom and Dad, God's called me to preach. He's called me, I believe, to go to the mission field. And I've known those very parents to become opposed to what the children or the child believe to be the will of God in his life. If we're going to pray for God to use us, that means everything we have, our reputation, our health, our wealth, our family members, are to be at his disposal broken, emptied of self, so that Christ might be glorified in the gospel. 
the pitchers were to be broken. Then next, the lighted lamps were to be held in the hand. As Christians, we are to hold forth the word of life in the lamp of God. That is, we are to stand as illuminators in our place where men may see our good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. Moving on very quickly. Every man was then to cry the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Can you think what that would sound like if you were a Midianite soldier asleep in the camp? All of a sudden, trumpets start blowing and the lights light up all over the hillside in the midst of the camp and people are shouting, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. There had already been a rumor we'd seen in, in, the, in the previous messages that this man had had a dream and how Gideon was going to come in and overthrow them. And now I'm sure that that had spread throughout the conversation of the soldiers. And when this happened, it threw them into total chaos and confusion. Do you recognize that the method which God has in promoting the redemptive program of Jesus Christ is through the sword of the Lord. Who could tell me what the sword of the Lord is? Hmm? Ephesians chapter 6. It is the Word of God. The Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4. The Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. We use the Scriptures, God's Word, in the promotion of the gospel. It is the Lord's Word that accomplishes the Lord's work. And it's also our Word. It's the church's Word. Because the church is only authorized to proclaim the Word of God. And not fables and ideas of men which originate in the minds of men that we, when we proclaim the Word of God here in this church, we are to say, this is the Lord's Word, and it's our Word for success. We depend upon nothing but the Scriptures to promote the work of God Almighty. And if that won't get it, then we'll leave it unto God to bring forth that which is pleasing unto Him. Then finally, every man stood in his own place, Every man stood in his own place. As Christians, we are members of the body of Christ. If we had time, we'd go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and see how the functions exist in the members of the body. The body has many members, and not all the same, but they're all necessary to make up the body. Paul says, don't let the feet be jealous of the head. Don't let the ear be jealous of the eye. Whatever God has given you, He has given you that place and that gift and your person in His own sovereignty. And the same sovereignty He's dispensed out to other people. And so those who have the more showy, charismatic gifts that are more in the eyes of the people, they're not to look down upon the fingers and the toes and say, we don't have need of you. And then those who have been given the gifts of fingers and toes to carry out, they are not to be sitting back and being made jealous of those who are up with the more charismatic or showy gifts. 
We're all members of the body. We need each other. And we are to stand in the place where God has called us by creation and by providence and by grace and occupy till he comes. Every man is to do his own work. So how is God's program to be advanced? By the proclamation of a blowing trumpet in the gospel out of the lives of emptied people broken towards self so that the light of the word of God may shine forth clearly and men may know it's God in the midst and this thing, this thing is just not human. As our speaker told us a few weeks ago in our spring evangelistic campaign, of what it was that made the New Testament church different from the churches that followed. And there are organizations who claim that they are a true New Testament church, and they can trace their heritage all the way back to John the Baptist. What was it that convinced the heathen or the lost man in the New Testament time that God was real? Second Corinthians gave it to us, didn't it? That when one prophesies and the gospel is set forth and there's a lost person comes into the midst and the power of God is there, they'll fall down on their face and say, God is in the midst of you. <clears throat> My people, that's what we need here. That's what we need here at Oakland Baptist Church. We don't need more organization. We don't need more glamour. And we don't need more glitter. What we need is God's power in our midst when we have our public worship services that men, when they come into this service, cannot leave indifferently. They'll either leave mad or glad, one or the other. But they'll know that God was there in His Word. A blowing trumpet, an empty pitcher, and a shining light. You say, that's too simple. God says, I'm going to build my church with that. And nothing's going to overthrow it. Let's stand together.